good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Support for the Arts Section comes from the League of Chicago Theaters. On today's program, I'll take you with on my visit to the Chicago Botanic Garden to check out its annual Orchid Show. We'll hear from the Chicago Symphony Orchestra's music director, the maestro himself, Ricardo Muti. The CSO recently unveiled its 2023-24 schedule. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbano will stop by to review the world premiere play Boulevard of Bold Dreams. Later in the show, I'll talk to the director of one of the longest-running jazz festivals in the country, and we'll hear about a book that serves up a sweet look back at the history of Chicago bakeries. All that's coming up. Thanks for tuning in for some arts and culture this morning. Sure, most people think of roses around Valentine's Day, but for those willing to live a little more dangerously, orchids are where it's at. The Chicago Botanic Garden is celebrating the exotic flower with its annual orchid show, which is running through March 26th. Over 10,000 orchids are on display, many in the garden's greenhouse, where the temperature can be regulated to ensure the health of the tropical variations of the flower. The theme of this year's orchid show is magnified. The exhibition's organizers have put together a variety of installations that highlight the distinct elements that make orchids such a fascinating flower. I visited the Glencoe-based Chicago Botanic Garden earlier this week to get a closer look at the orchid show. I think it is definitely popular for these months that people are just, we're done with the holidays. People are looking for something to do because it's, you know, you get to this point in winter, like, oh, when is spring going to come? So you're craving that warmth and that color and um, looking for something to do. So this is the perfect place to find it. This is Chicago Botanic Garden Associate Vice President of Events and Programs, Jody Zambolo. She says the origins of the orchid celebration go back about a decade. This is our ninth year. Um, We actually started it 10 years ago, though, but we had to take one year off due to COVID. And we wanted to start the orchid show because looking for something to do during that, uh, those winter months um, of February and March when, you know, it's kind of cold to be outside, a little dreary, and it goes along with our mission. Um, here at the Chicago Botanic Gardens. So what better way to draw visitors, um, have them come inside out of the cold and dreary weather and see beautiful plants that are full of color and warmth and visit the Chicago Botanic Garden. One of the unique things maybe for listeners that aren't familiar with orchids, most of them need a warmer climate to thrive. Yes. Orchids do well in warmer climates, and that's what we have inside here in our greenhouses where we have a lot of the orchids, and then in the galleries here and and have experts who can take care of them and and show them off beautifully. I came out and did a a story on the orchid show back in 2017. One of the things that that stuck out to me from that visit, I remember you telling me that uh, there was a challenge just in and getting the orchids inside, because uh, once they arrive in Chicago, then they're, they're brought to the Chicago Botanic Garden. But even just that 
short period in between uh, getting them off the truck and then into the greenhouse because our winter is so brutal here in February that can be a challenge to these delicate flowers. Yeah, that might have maybe been the year of the polar vortex. (laughs) Yeah, that was a huge challenge for us. Yes, to get them out of the truck and into the building, um, you know, you got to be very careful uh, so they don't uh, get exposed to the cold. But yes, you do want to keep them in a nice environment, warm environment. There are orchids that are part of the collection here at the Chicago Botanic Garden, but for the show, you bring in orchids from around the world? Yes, so um, we have an orchidarium um, at our south campus that is part of our plant production. And um, we have orchids that that are going extinct. We want to um, study those and grow those. They're not for the public, but we do showcase some of them here at um, the orchid show uh, here in the Regenstein Center. And but we do have to buy in because we cannot grow those grow uh you know the orchids that you see here in mass quantities so certainly we have to buy those in um, to make the show beautiful and you want to be able to see you know those 10,000 orchid blooms um, that make the show what it is from places like florida and california hawaii and even ohio <laughs> so the, there's growers in ohio i know right it doesn't that doesn't sound very tropical but <laughs> i'd go to places like florida or hawaii or california for sure <laughs> right and also there's a little display of a local florist in Winnetka that's able to grow them. Yes, so we do work with a florist in Winnetka and they, um, they grow orchids that you don't normally um, find in other places and uh, they have a beautiful display that we like to uh, showcase every year. It's um, unusual orchids. And every year there's a different theme this year. It's magnified. What was the idea behind this year's theme? Yeah, so, you know, we have a a list of ideas, you know, that we throw out and we keep that list in our back pocket thinking, you know, what is what is going to be fun for the visitors to see because you you don't want to do the same thing every year. So Magnified was a way to uh, go big and get close to those orchids, to see the little intricacies of the orchids that you can't see with the naked eye. So, you know, you're going to see things through magnified glasses, you're going to see things through Fresnel lenses, and Um, be wowed by uh, the little things that you don't know that orchids have. So you're definitely going to be surprised. I mean, in in a certain sense, all flowers are uh, pretty to to look at. There's beauty there, but some of these orchid variations have some complex details that you might not catch with your naked eye. The magnification really highlights those unique features. Yeah, there, you know, the little hairs or the little spots and things like that, and the symmetry that you don't realize, too, that's there with the orchids. They're, they're such a popular flower and the most expansive. For people listening at home, it's not just walking in and looking at a bunch of potted orchids. There's a lot of thought put into the design and display, and we were talking before we started recording. It's really your staff, curators take artistic license and how these presentations are created. Yeah, the staff is amazing. They come up with these uh, great ideas of how to show that. So, you know, oversized design of an orchid that's just huge and a telescope. You know, you have to you look at it and you're like, oh, okay, I get it. And it's, it's in the, the orchids are in a way that is designed as a telescope. And the Fresnel lenses, and those are used in lighthouses. And, you know, I could never think of that. <laughs> but we have the staff who thinks of those things. And uh, fun house mirrors, you know, you think when you were a kid, you went into a fun house and you see exaggerated, yourself exaggerated in different shapes. And so come see orchids in that way. It's, it's a really neat experience. So no visuals on radio. Also, 
no ability to smell things, um, I'm having a hard time picking up certain scents, but there is a, a subtle scent from some of these orchids. There's like a subtle fragrance. They do, and there, there's a few that you could, that do give off a, a stronger scent, um, and you can see those in different um, displays. One in the local grower area has a scent. Um, there's an orchid that I believe has a chocolate scent, and so there's a few that do give off a smell, but not, not all of them. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the art section. I'm Gary Zydek. I'm talking with the Chicago Botanic Garden's Jody Zambolo about the annual orchid show. Something I noticed right away just walking through the show is how many people are are stopping to take pictures and and selfies with themselves and the orchids, presumably for Instagram. Thinking back 10 years ago when the orchid show debuted, social media existed, but it was different. Is that something you've seen evolve over the years, the impact social media is having on how people engage with this? I have completely noticed that, yes, Uh, especially in uh, one of the galleries where the telescope style orchid um, display is. It is very Instagrammable and uh, it's it's fun to watch because you're like, wow, I I didn't see that coming. (laughs) And um, even the Fresnel lens area is... um, very Instagrammable. People are just wowed by it and they're trying to figure out, you know, how can I get this in a photo? And it does work. You, you have to be at the right, right. Uh, length away from it. And But it's fun to watch people try to figure it out because they yeah. really want to take a photo of it. Yeah, something like this. All these orchids with these really well thought out installations is almost tailor-made for Instagram and and social media. It's great. It's great for us because we want people to share those photos and uh, encourage their friends and family to to come see the show. Do you see an uptick in in visitors for the show? I think so. Yeah, we do. We, um, it's become, you know, something that people will, they do want to come back and see it year after year. And of course, you know, tell us if, you know, what they like and better than the last one or not. Um, so it's um, become that for our, for our guests and members. And, um, and then you see new people coming because they've heard about it. And how long does it take you to plan the show? It takes a, a good year, a really good year or more to plan. And then it takes a good two and a half, three weeks to install. So you're already working on next year's? Oh, yeah. We're already working on next year's and the year after. <laughs> that was Chicago Botanic Garden Associate Vice President of Events and Programs, Jody Zambolo. This year's Orchid Show continues through March 26th. You can find more information at chicagobotanic.org. I hope you're staying warm this Sunday morning. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Gary Zydek. You're listening to the Arts Section. Next up, some news from Orchestra Hall this week. Ricardo Muti is concluding his 13th season tenure as music director of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra in June. There's been much speculation about what the maestro's future with the CSO might be after he steps down. The 2023-24 season was unveiled on Wednesday, and a familiar name will be opening it, Ricardo Muti. Chicago-based music critic and writer Dennis Polko sat down with the maestro to find out what's next. After 55 years of having been music director at the Maggio Musicale in Florence, the Philharmonia Orchestra in London, the Philadelphia Orchestra, the Scala 
in Milan, and of course the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Maestro Muti will be, for the first time in his long, illustrious career, a freelance conductor. And happily, one of the first places he has agreed to make a return to in that new role is the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, where we are happy to report Maestro Muti will be opening the 2023-24 season next September for three programs, including a world premiere of a new work written for him by Philip Glass and a symphony ball. Welcome, Maestro. And uh, we'd love to, of course, hear more details about all of this. Additionally, uh, Maestro has agreed to lead a uh, CSO European tour in early 2024. And I am curious, Maestro, if you would see this as representing a coda to your work in Chicago, or is this an exposition, maybe a new chapter? You said I will be freelance. I'm not. I, it's an expression that I don't like. At least, what, what a, would, what's the correct word? I don't know, use? but freelance. Okay. I, I will be. Um, I, I will not have any more. The um, is emeritus affair. I don't know. I don't know. This is not up to me to say what will be if will be a title or not to be a title. That is not a. See up to me to say, but I will continue to conduct the orchestras that I love very much. Uh, Chicago, of course, I will come back. Uh, as you said, in September, I will reopen the season and I will bring the orchestra on tour, the European tour in uh, January, very important European tour. We will be back in La Scala, Paris, uh, Vienna, Luxembourg, other important uh, places. So when you end as music director of an institution, doesn't mean that uh, you became suddenly a stranger. Right. You are still connected. If your relationship with the musicians has been uh, good, with respect, sometimes even with love, then uh, it's important that the relationship goes on. You don't departure for uh, forever. And that's the reason why they asked me to reopen the season. <laughs> I don't want to see somebody like that goes away through the door and comes back through the window. <laughs> but as you mentioned before, I've been music director since I was 27 years old. So many, many, many years of music directorship. But this is tiring. Uh, after you have done for many decades. And uh, so uh, I will be a sort of free bird. (laughs) uh, Free free bird, not freelance. No, no freelancers. (laughs) (laughs) It's strange. Maybe it's a beautiful word. I don't know. But I don't know why. It it means, you know, that you're free. See, I I was always free mentally. But but without the administrative The administration, the war, the auditions, uh, all the things that uh, take place part of your your time of your life of your energy so only the pleasure of conducting uh, the orchestras and the musicians that uh, you respect and they respect you but i guess part of the distinction i uh, we wanted to make is that because I've, i've read this where people will say you are retiring 
and you're not retiring. No. Basically, you're cutting back your administrative sí, 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 duties sí, sí, sí. as a music director, sí, sí. but you'll still be conducting sí, sí, as sí, much, sí. if not more, well, than I you have ever. I ma- have many projects uh, right. uh, until to uh, now, until 2026. Until this moment, right. I am in good health. Right. In very good health, I feel uh, very, very well, very strong. But I want to enjoy also my children, my grandchildren, all my animals that I have in the country, the donkeys, the yes. rabbit, the chicken, etc., uh, etc., et right. et to enjoy a part of life that uh, for, of course, uh, reasons that are very clear, I couldn't enjoy because I had to travel. I like always to, to sleep in my bed, but I had to sleep all my life in different uh, hotels, si. in different, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, music has been a great thing in my life, but it's been also very demanding, uh, some sacrifice, because you have to sacrifice many things. Uh, of course, if something happens, I will, I will, I will not uh, certainly not be a pathetic figure on, on podium. If something happens, uh, I don't want to look like, uh, you know, so, somebody that uh, wants to stay on the podium in any case. Uh, no matter what. <laughs> we still have, I mean, there there's still programs that you'll be doing this season, the, the season that culminates your music directorship. So on February 23rd. Feb- uh, Schumann Violin Concerto and uh, Tchaikovsky Manfred. Manfred Symphony. The Schumann Violin Concerto. I recorded many years ago with Gideon Kramer in London. There is a recording that has a Schumann violin concerto and Sibelius violin concerto. And it's a beautiful concerto, very, very important and not very well known because uh, uh, generally you you know p- you play Brahms, Beethoven, uh, Mendelssohn, Tchaikovsky, etc. But this uh, Schumann concerto is very interesting and played by Julia Fischer. That is a great, ah, okay. uh, a, a great, uh, great solist. The second movement is really one of the greatest pages of music written by Schumann. I said to the orchestra, I said, the second movement was from Schumann dedicated to his wife, Clara, the great pianist, you know, Clara Schumann. So it was a, a sort of homage of love. And the, and the Manfred uh, Symphony, uh, which I know has always been a, a piece near and dear to you, See, si. uh, Tchaikovsky considered the Manfred his greatest work. Okay. It's a massive work. And uh, I do always, uh, I recorded with the Philharmonia right. many years ago when I did the entire cycle of the symphonies. 
but and I do exactly in the original way that ends with the organ. But uh, there is a tradition in Russia where uh, they change the finale and they go back at certain point to the beginning ah. with a great pam pam papa the dramatic etc etc. But it's wrong because uh, uh, that uh, creates more uh, enthusiasm in the in the public uh, because it's a great phrase full of passion. But the finale. The way it's written by Tchaikovsky, it's uh, less uh, uh, impressive, makes less uh, uh, enthusiasm because it's not, uh, you know, the the, the great phrase, uh, right. uh, but uh, it's much more uh, makes more sense considering the story of Manfred. Prego, prego, Dennis. All the best for you and a happy new year to all the people that are listening to this broadcast. That was Maestro Ricardo Muti speaking with Dennis Poco. The CSO program with the Schumann Violin Concerto with soloist Julia Fisher and the Tchaikovsky Manfred Symphony takes place at Orchestra Hall February 23rd through the 25th. You can find more information at cso.org. This segment was produced and engineered by Eric Arunis. And you are listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. Joining me remotely are the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanal. Good morning. Good morning, Gary. Good morning. Good morning, Gary. The 95th Academy Awards ceremony will take place three weeks from today. Timeline Theater's world premiere, Boulevard of Bold Dreams, takes audiences back 83 years to the night of the 12th Oscar ceremony in 1940. That year's ceremony was significant because Hattie McDaniel made history becoming the first African-American to win an Oscar for her role in Gone with the Wind. Boulevard of Bold Dreams playwright Ladarian Williams imagines an alternative universe where McDaniel is debating whether or not to attend the ceremony that night. She stops in the bar at the Ambassador Hotel where she meets two people who have their own opinions on what she should do. Carrie, we'll start with you. I know there's a lot more going on here. Can you fill in some of the details uh, surrounding Boulevard of Bold Dreams? Sure. 
Sure. Well, I think one of the important things to know historically is that at the time of the Oscars and at the Ambassador Hotel, and actually it was the Coconut Grove nightclub, I believe, which was going to be the actual room that was used for the Oscars. As you mentioned, this is the 12th Oscars. They they hadn't quite grown into the huge global phenomenon that they are today. But it was a segregated place. And to even be allowed in the room took some maneuvering. I think uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, Jonathan, but I believe initially they were just going to have, like, basically have Hattie McDaniel wait in the hall. And if she won, and she was considered an odds-on favorite to win, they would then just bring her in, let her make a speech, and then take her back out. The best that they're willing to do for her is to keep her at a table in the back. She cannot sit with her cast members. The speech that they've prepared for her, which in actuality is the speech that she delivers, the speech that we hear her practicing in the play, I should say, you know, includes comments about, I hope to always be a credit to my race, things that don't sit so well with her uh, as, as played by Gabrielle Lott Rogers. Now, the other two people in the play are a maid, Dottie, who works at the hotel, and Arthur, who is a bartender in the bar. They have come from Alabama. They are both black aspiring artists from a small town in Alabama. They are not lovers, but they are very good friends and have apparently been so since childhood. Arthur hopes to become a filmmaker, a director, and Dottie has, you know, has some dreams of being a singer and an actress, but her dreams seem to be a lot more beat up, I think would be one way to put it, by the time we meet her, uh, as opposed to Arthur. And yeah, I think that this is a an interesting look at what if, that manages to pack in a lot of issues about black representation, uh, about access to creating your own story, having power over your own narrative. And it, it's interesting to me that this play is a timeline production that comes right on the heels of their what I thought was a very successful revival of Alice Childress's Trouble in Mind last fall, which looked at some of these same issues but through the lens of a Broadway production. I, I thought that you know, he's, a, he's a younger playwright. Not everything in the script felt as seamless as perhaps I might have liked. But overall, I was I was quite, quite absorbed and uh, very appreciative of the performances in this production. Jonathan, what did you think? Well, you know, I, I, my first thought is, is that uh, a week ago, last week, you and I discussed a, a brand new three-character play with a complex structure that went back and forth in time. Mm-hmm. And today we're discussing another <laughs> world premiere three-character yeah. play. But this one has a much simpler structure because it's set in real time in a swank hotel bar in 1940, whereas we've explained a young bartender and a hotel housekeeper encounter Hattie McDaniel on the night of the Oscar ceremony. Uh, The situation is improbable, and the three characters are, frankly, far too woke for 1940. But I like this show a lot, and I gather you did too. Yeah. Playwright Ladarian Williams has created three believable people who are extremely well acted under director Malkia Stampley, who has also shaped a visually rich production. And for me, the key to it all is the personality of Hattie McDaniel, mm-hmm. who is down-to-earth, unassuming, and engaging, both as written by the playwright and also as performed by Gabrielle Loft-Rogers, as you have already said. Lovely performance, performed with warmth and dignity. You see, the swank little bar is closed at the moment, and Ms. McDaniel sneaks in to get away from the Oscar crowd. And once there, the young black bartender and housekeeper uh, um, get over their initial awe at encountering her to share their dreams and frustrations with her and 
she responds in kind. It's not lost that if the bar had been open, McDaniel would not have been allowed in back in 1940, just as she nearly was denied a seat at the ceremony itself, as we've already said, which right. is very, very well documented. Right, and nor uh, was she allowed to attend the premiere of Gone with the Wind in Atlanta. That was an interesting right. little historical tidbit was uh, that I learned from this place, that Clark Gable had threatened to boycott if she wasn't allowed to attend, and I, she apparently said, no, no, that's not worth it. I'll, I'll, I won't be there. You need to be there. <laughs> yeah. Now, we should point out that Boulevard of Bold Dreams is not a biography of McDaniel. Other plays about her have done that. Uh, it's what the author calls a meditation on a moment in her life, and it's also, frankly, a fantasy about the impact she might have had on two younger individuals, both black, both would-be artists. I think it succeeds well at being both thoughtful and emotional. Yeah, another play that it reminded me of, although that it's very different in structure, is Lynn Nottage's play, By the Way, Meet Vera Stark, which uh, traces a sort of similar actor, although not not inspired necessarily by Hattie McDaniel, but a black actress in Hollywood around the same period who has played a lot of, you know, maids and nannies and uh, similar characters. And it, that play traces her career up through the 70s. Now, it does go back and forth where we see clips of the films that she's in. You know, it really does kind of weave in a lot of different time periods. But I do think there is a little bit of a time travel element, if you will, and I think you hit on this, Jonathan, with the idea of imagining what Hattie McDaniel's impact might have been. It is worth noting that her taking the role of Mammy was controversial within the black community. There's a note in the Timeline program that William L. Patterson of the Chicago Defender reviewed Gone with the Wind and called it a weapon of terror against black America. You know, this kind of rosy, romanticized version of, you know, the lost cause did not sit well with many, including the NAACP. Famously, McDaniel had said, and this line does come up in the play, I'd rather, in various, I've heard it in various incarnations, but essentially the, the gist is, I'd rather make money play a maid than to be a maid. Um, and that line takes on, I would say, fresh sharpness and heft when delivered as it is here to Mildred Marie Langford's Dottie, who literally is a maid in the hotel and is dealing with the double whammy of not just racial harassment and segregation, but also sexual harassment, as is so often the case with women in service roles in the hotel yeah. sector and elsewhere. So hearing, I, I thought that was, I, I was expecting to hear some variant on that line. Hearing it delivered to someone who is still having to be a maid while trying to get roles brought a kind of extra layer of, of nuance and kind of, hmm, that, that's landing a little differently with me, yeah. right? Right. I, I think the, the, the original line was included some, some money numbers. Right, and McDaniel, yeah. McDaniel said something like, uh, I would rather play a maid for $700 a week than be a maid for $7 a week, right. or something like that. They've left out the money references. The point is the same with or without, with or without the money references. As you said, her playing this role was controversial even in its time, as she said, as others pointed out, you know, you play what you are offered, uh, you know, or or you don't work. Right. And if you don't work, you know, in her early career, she did, in fact, have to support herself as a housemaid, as a housekeeper, 
and other, you know, menial tasks, even after she was performing on radio. Uh, you know, her salary was so little on radio that she had to, had to supplement it. She eventually ended up making very good money uh, and, uh, and living large. She had famous lavish parties at her, mm-hmm. at her home, I believe, in Pasadena or someplace right. in that area of Los Angeles. Am I, under- I wanted yeah. to... Before before we ramble sure. on too much, I wanted to compliment the design team for Absolutely. this production. They've done a smashing a smashing job with Boulevard of Bold Dreams, from the lush, beautiful Art Deco setting for the bar, which is in in canary yellow and a beautiful gray green and a wonderful sort of peacock feather pattern and the wallpaper, wonderful lush setting, uh, to the bartender's period correct. Marcel's hair, a very good costume and, and makeup and, mm-hmm. and, and uh, wig touch, to the dazzling turquoise blue ground gown which McDaniel wears, as she actually did that night. These elements really enlarge the production, as well as providing a physical anchor for the situation and for the characters. Right. You know, it's interesting, because I saw this play not long after I'd seen a new film, uh, documentary by El Black. Uh, film critic Elvis Mitchell called "Is That Black Enough for You?" and it talks. Uh, you know, it's mostly set with the, the explosion of black cinema in the '60s and '70s, but he does go back and talk about the compromises that actors such as McDaniel had to make, going all the way up to Sidney Poitier, who himself was sometimes deemed for taking roles that made him the safe black man for white people. Or as one person put it, <laughs> in Lilies of the Field, he's in the, you know, he's, he's there to help the, you know, I think they called them the Nazi nuns. I don't think they were actually Nazis, but that was sort of how they, you know, described the world in which he entered. And I think that there is some truth to that, that to be a groundbreaker, you often have to be somebody who is capable of assimilating a little bit. But I do like one of the other design elements, which I think is the, are the video uh, sequences that we see. They, they're, they're simple, but they very well bookended. Starting, I don't know if we actually see the video clip, but there is at least an audio track of Monique when she won her Oscar for Precious. She directly name-checked Patty McDaniel as somebody help make the way possible for someone who looks like her to be on that stage and getting that award to a montage at the end of all the black women who have who have followed Halle Berry, Viola Davis, Regina King, um, Octavia Spencer. And you really do get a sense that we may not have appreciated everything Hattie did at that time, but that she did lay the groundwork to make it possible, even if it was a role that in it on the, you know, it certainly seemed to be stereotypical. I think there's a line at one point where someone of them says, yeah, but you actually did talk back to the white people in Gone with the Wind, right? <laughs> yeah, she's the sassy yeah, mammy, yeah. and she does, you know, she does kind of, I won't say put them in their place, but she's not completely servile, you know, and I think that's what I appreciate about this play. I think in some ways it's a little overstuffed. I agree with you, Jonathan, that maybe some of it feels a little contemporary to our ears. But I, I think what I really do appreciate about this script is that, you know, he's re- Ladarian Williams is really... He is trying to give us a lot, and I would always rather have somebody who is bursting with ideas and enthusiasm and lots of different points of view, as I think was the case, you know, with what we felt with Radial Gradient a couple, you know, a week or so ago, than someone who's who, who's playing it safe. You know, as you said, it's structurally a pretty straightforward thing, but I think the conversations within the shifts and how the characters relate to each other, how they feel about each other is very adeptly handled, and I think it's just a terrific cast. I particularly thought all the interactions between Gabrielle uh, Lott Rogers as Hattie and Mildred Marie Langford as Dottie were just incredibly rich and, you know, just, just absolutely spellbinding in many, in many instances. Yeah. 
And, and one little touch is that the playwright has managed to work in uh, Hattie McDaniel singing a couple of songs. And most people who know her work from movies or from her very early uh, television series, Beulah, in which she again played a maid, uh, probably don't realize that she was a very, very capable and skillful musician. And she had played and sung and written music uh, in, in, in vaudeville and on, the, on the, you know, the black entertainment circuit before she made it big in, um, in Hollywood. So it was fun to hear, to hear her, to have the play reference, her musical talents also. Uh, right. You know, you mentioned Sidney Poitier and Lilies of the Field, and I think I am correct, but not absolutely sure, that after Hattie McDaniel won an Oscar in 1940, the next Oscar to be won by a person of color was Sidney Poitier. I think so, yeah. I mean, there had been nominees. Yeah, Dorothy Dandridge had been nominated but hadn't won. I think you're absolutely right on that. Yeah, Yeah. so that just shows you. And, you know, how long was it between Poitier and the next person to win? You know, so, and even now, you know, there's the tagline, Oscar's so white. Well, I don't think they're... Well, wait, Angela Bassett is up this year, right? I haven't paid attention to the Oscars as much. She's nominated. Yeah, she is nominated. But, you know, there, there definitely has not you know, been parody. And, you know, I think if you're a fan of old Hollywood, I agree with you, Jonathan. I think the sets and the costumes are just really enjoyable, you know, to kind of feel like you're you're a fly on the wall, you know, and I loved the way it was glamorous, but it also felt intimate because of the setting that it's at, you know, before hours are at, you know, before it's really open to the public. You almost feel like they've got their own little speakeasy going where they can kind of speak their minds a bit more than they would if they were in the presence of white people. And we do see we hear about the other white people that they're in, in, uh, having interactions with, you know, through the phone call from the boss that Arthur has to keep taking and, you know, how he has to sort of, you know, code switch from being this, you know, impassioned young man talking about his vision for a film he'd like to make to being the, the hired help who has to kind of bow and scrape a little bit to the, the people who pay his checks, the white people who run this segregated hotel where he and his, his best friend are just doing the best they can to keep things going. I quickly wanted to mention next week on on the show, I'm doing a feature on a a new Green Book exhibit at the Illinois Holocaust Museum and Education Center. I think most people are are aware the the Green Book was a a publication that informed black Americans where it was safe to to travel, where they could go to stay or to eat if they were traveling. One of the things that comes through in the the exhibit is in the 30s, 40s, 50s, there was this segregation and discrimination all over. I think maybe for a younger generation, and I'm including myself in this, there's this Mm -hmm. thought that it only existed in the South, but the first editions of the book are focused on New York City, in Harlem, I don't know that many people today think that there was like this segregation in Harlem in in the 30s, uh, and that existed. That's why the Green Book was necessary. Then the Green Book's scope expands over the years and includes uh, different parts of the North and then the whole country. Just what you were talking about, some of the things that that Hattie McDaniel was facing. Uh, I don't know that a lot of people would even think about that taking place in Hollywood, but her being forced to sit on the the edge of the ballroom and right. some of those things. And that was the compromise. I mean, that was the big, generous compromise they offered her. But as I said, initially it was just like, well, we'll just bring you in when when we need to hear from you. I mean, can you imagine how insulting that is? Uh, And something to think about. You know, we we hear so much about, oh, liberal Hollywood. It's like, no, Hollywood has reflected the times as much as it's pushed forward. They were not always brave about standing up to the forces of racism, certainly not where where Hattie Daniel was concerned. 
this is true of not just uh, uh, the Hollywood industry, but even uh, the American theater industry. Right, uh, right. Well, the arts, generally speaking, broadly speaking, are liberal and tend to be uh, politically more liberal probably than the country as a whole. They still are not immune from the institutionalized, uh, the history of institutionalized right. racism, and there are plenty, plenty, plenty of examples. Right. I'm really looking forward to seeing the next thing Ladarian Williams writes. I'll tell you that. I think he's, you know, he's fairly early in his career. This is a world premiere, and I'm very glad the timeline decided to, to take it on. Timeline Theater's world premiere, Boulevard of Bold Dreams, continues through March 19th. All right, Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. Oh, you're welcome, Gary. Thank you. Thank you both. Hold your breath. Make a wish. Count to three. Come with me and you'll be in a world of pure... My name is Gary Zydek. You're listening to the Arts Section. Local food and travel writer Jennifer Billick estimates that at one time there were around 7,000 bakeries operating in the city of Chicago. By the early 90s, that number was approximately 440, and today that figure is even lower. While probably good for my waistline, the loss of independent family-owned bakeries also saddens me. Billick was so interested in the area's bakery history, she decided to write a book. Historic Chicago Bakeries came out last year. The book focuses on the beginnings and heyday of the city's baking scene, focusing on a nine-decade period between the 1880s and 1970s. I caught up with Billick to talk about what it was like researching Chicago's historic bakeries. What initially got you thinking about writing a book about the history of Chicago bakeries? I'm from Chicago originally, and I have been going to Chicago area bakeries for my entire life. And I, I had recently been writing history books, like food history books. I have one about classic restaurants in Milwaukee. So we were at Dinkle Bakery one day, and I was looking around, and I was like, oh, this is, this is a nice historic bakery. You know, I, I could probably write an entire book about the historic bakeries in Chicago. And <laughs> I tested the idea with my boyfriend who said, yeah, that's great. (laughs) I I emailed my publisher that same day and and then it went from there. Would you say you have a sweet tooth? Are you the type of person who makes sure to stop at a bakery if you're visiting somewhere new? Yes, much to my dentist's chagrin. I love (laughs) everything sugar. (laughs) (laughs) So the the book is set up chronologically. Uh, Chapter one focuses on the period of the 1880s to the 1910s. Is much known about the bakeries that operated in Chicago before the the Great Fire in 1871? Not a whole lot, mainly because the city didn't start actually licensing bakeries until the 1880s. So until 1880 specifically, I think. So there was not only a lot of records and information that went up in smoke, right, with the with the fire, but the records just weren't there because the city didn't have a process in place. As far as the oldest still operating Chicago bakery, would that title go to Ganella? If you're talking about bread, I believe it's it's either S. Rosen or Ganella. Forgive me, I can't remember exactly off the top of my head. I think it's S. Rosen. If you're talking specifically about pastries, then it's Ferrara Baking Company. And if you're talking about bakeries, like with um, cakes and cookies and things, then it's Rosers. Okay. Yeah, there's a bit of a, a debate. Sure. <laughs> Which can claim the title of the oldest. 
I can imagine. So mm-hmm. for those, I'm guessing some of those are still family owned. So that probably helps in the, the process. You could go right to the source and, and talk to yeah, them. Yeah, all of them are still family owned, actually. The, the three to four ones that are up for it. <laughs> One of the older still standing bakeries that caught my eye in that first chapter was Leza Spumonian Desserts. In part because I now live in Elmhurst and there's a small... Leza Satellite Cafe in a weird part of town, and it has the the feeling of an old school bakery. And then I I found it in your your book that <laughs> it's the actual bakery is now based in Bellwood, and the Elmer's location is just a, a small satellite cafe. But its origins actually go all the way back to 1905 in the Little Italy neighborhood. Yes, yes. So they when Ferrara Bakery began, it actually was Ferrara and Leza together. Um, and they separated, I believe, in the 1920s. And Leza, I think, is in Bellwood now. Um, yeah, I'd yeah. Have to double check, but yeah, yeah. So they they started way back at that point, and then around the 20s they split off into two separate companies. But they're cousins, so they're still <laughs> they're still in the the overall family. Right. Isn't there like a a pizza parallel to that? Didn't like the Lou Malnati's split off from? Yeah, yeah, I can't. It was, yeah. Oh, gosh, <laughs> that's a that's a question for Steve Zelensky. <laughs> <laughs> and then in the next chapter, you focus on bakeries that opened between the 1920s and 40s, highlighting some of the legends of the local baking world that many of our listeners likely recognize. You write about the bakery you grew up going to, Weber's, on the southwest side of the city. And in that section, you also shed light on this fascinating side story about a group of local bakers that formed this club, the Baker's Dozen Group, that I believe formed in the 1940s. This was really something that most people, unless you were part of the club, didn't know about, right? Right, right. Yeah, it was a surprise to everyone, including me, actually. (laughs) And it's essentially like a a secret society of... uh, local bakers? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's a secret society of 13 local bakers, so it's a true baker's dozen, and they get together once a month to talk about different products and figure out how they can make it better, what they can do for their customers, just to make sure everybody still gets their scratch-made baked goods in the best possible way, and they're all really close friends, and it's such a it was such a affirming experience <laughs> to talk to them. They just are so, so thrilled to be in such close business with everyone else. If you're just tuning in, this is the arts section. My name is Gary Zydek. I'm talking with author Jennifer Billock about her new book, Historic Chicago Bakeries. Let's move on to, to chapter three, which focuses on bakeries that opened between the 1950s and 70s. Did you have a, a specific stopping point in mind once you started researching and writing? Did you know you were going to stop in the 70s? Yeah, so it is a historic Chicago bakery, so I didn't want to get too far into current history. I tried to, now everyone's going to know how old I am now, because I tried to stop it before I was born. So. <laughs> <laughs> There is sort of this sad reality that looms over all of this, and that's that so many local independently owned bakeries have closed. I think many people listening right now, depending on how old they are, have memories of a local bakery that was probably what their family used for big and small events in their lives. I grew up in Wheaton, and I have these great memories of my grandma taking me to Carney's Bakery in downtown Wheaton. 
I believe it closed while I was in junior high or high school, so it didn't really register with me at the time. But as I've gotten older, I do pay attention to the dwindling number of independently owned bakeries around. And I know there are multiple factors in play as to why. I'm sure supermarkets uh, can take part of the blame. They've taken a chunk of business. People have become busier, and it's easier just to pick up something at the store you're already at. But I'm curious, uh, I'm interested in your perspective. What are your thoughts as to why we see fewer and fewer of these independently owned bakeries? Yeah, I think it's a combination of things. So I think as we you know, grow older, as the American population, we're becoming more and more impatient. <laughs> and to get scratch-made things that may sell out at the, the like first few hours that the bakery is open, it doesn't make sense for a lot of people who want something that they can get quickly, that they can get whenever they need it. So that kind of boosts the, the bakery sections of grocery stores, which is unfortunate because I'm, I know some of them are great. Some of them like actually bake things from scratch there, but a lot of them do parbake their goods and then freeze them and then re like finish baking them before they put them out for sale. So it, it's a less qual- lesser quality, but it's a little bit cheaper as well. So I think part of it is, you know, people want something quickly whenever they want it and they want it at cheaper prices. The other reason is that, you know, the bakery families, as the generations get older, sometimes they just don't want to carry on the tradition. Like that happened with Swedish Bakery in Andersonville, right? They had they had children, but the children didn't want to take the business. So they, they closed because there was no one to take over. And do you have a sense of what the future looks like for some of those still standing baking legends that you wrote about? Do you think we'll see more family-owned bakeries close in the future? It's interesting. I got a mix of both. So I was talking to uh, John Roser, and he has a son and who's not old enough to, <laughs> to do have any kind of job. He's just a little toddler. He's super cute. But, but I asked him what will happen if your son doesn't take over the bakery. And he said, well, it all has been open, but about 140 years at that point, that's a pretty good run. So <laughs> it's, <laughs> yeah, so there's an op- there's an opportunity for someone to take over, but if someone doesn't and they don't want it to be an outside the family owned business, then it's possible that in 30 years, some of the ones that we love now will close. Also, one other thing I wanted to mention, on the opposite end of the spectrum, we, we have these giant superstores with their bakery departments. But then on the other side of the equation, there also seems to be a growing craft movement with new bakers opening up small operations where they're, they're hyper-focused on making very specific items. There was a, a cupcake fad like a decade ago, but I feel like I'm seeing bakers open pop-ups or small shops with really select menus uh, that focus on quality products. Are you seeing that as well? Yeah, I have seen that. It's it's interesting to watch. It's like a new generation of bakers that are coming in with really interesting concepts and ideas. I'm seeing a lot of it with bread as well. Like craft-made bread is becoming very popular right now. Yeah, I've noticed that as well. So we're talking in late February. That means... Fat Tuesday is coming up, and for some of us, Poonchki Day, and this is really a regional thing. I know there's an emphasis on Poonchkis in some other cities, but this isn't a, a national thing. Not every 
city has uh, pooch keys around this time of year. That's correct. It's it's mostly Midwestern. I know there are some cities outside the Midwest that have kind of caught on and thought, oh, we should sell these too. They sound delicious. But it is very much a Midwestern phenomenon because Polish immigrants largely came to Chicago and the Midwest with such a huge population that it just made sense to continue selling the treats that they enjoyed. <laughs> Jennifer Billock is the author of Historic Chicago Bakeries. Hey, thanks so much for making time to talk with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a good time. That's Jennifer Billock. She's the author of Historic Chicago Bakeries. You can find the book at several local bookstores or online wherever you buy books. You can find more information at jenniferbillock.com. You're tuned into the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. One of the country's longest-running jazz festivals kicks off later this week in West Suburban Elmhurst. Dizzy Gillespie, Clark Terry, and Diana Krall are among the jazz stars who have performed at the Elmhurst University Jazz Fest over the years. In addition to performances from a handful of professionals, every year the festival welcomes some of the top collegiate jazz bands from around the country. This year's festival, the 56th edition, gets underway Thursday, February 23rd. I recently caught up with the festival's director, Chris Parsons, to talk about the event's long history and what to expect at this year's fest. This will be the 56th Elmhurst University Jazz Festival, and the origins go back to the late 60s. There's kind of an interesting backstory to how this got started, right? Yeah, um, there was a different national uh, festival called the American College Jazz Festival, and there were different sites throughout the country, and Elmhurst hosted the Midwest region. So it was, you know, they would take the top big band, top combo, top vocal jazz group, and the winner would get to do a trip to compete in the national festival, the other different reasons. And that went uh, defunct in 1973. And we were fortunate enough to have um, Jim Cunningham, who was a professor here and dean of students, and felt the need to continue that on campus and turn it into the Elmhurst College Jazz Festival. And the big change he made is he moved it from it being a competition to it being educational. So instead of a winner-take-all format, it was just more about any group at any level come on in, and they would talk and give them advice. And then if the judges felt it appropriate, they would give out outstanding ensemble awards or outstanding soloists. But got away from the ranking one, two, three, and just made it more about everybody wants to get better at this. And I think that's the value. that That's what makes our festival a little unique. Yeah, I've always thought that's interesting that the National Festival goes away, but Elmhurst University, but then Elmhurst College decides to to keep it going, and, and here mm-hmm. it is still going strong. So yeah, for folks maybe that, that haven't been to the, to the festival, just to go a little further about how it's set up, so you have all these collegiate jazz groups from around the country, but mostly the, the Midwest come and then they perform, and then there's also some bigger-named professional jazz artists who are invited to, to attend as well? Yeah, we um, the format and variety has changed a little bit over years, but for the last you know couple decades, it's been you have the collegiate groups come in, and we have three judges that we bring in, guest artists that critique and you know give notes to the bands, and then that happens throughout our afternoon sessions, and then in the evening we have a college group perform, and the same thing happens. And then um, a featured, you know, national act comes in. So, for example, this year, 
our big acts are going to be the Gordon Goodwin Big Fat Band, as well as the John Pizzarelli Trio the next night, as well as a featured concert with our three guest artists, who uh, this year will be Tamir Hindelman, Dennis McCrell, and Terrell Stafford will play with our jazz band. But um, So yeah, it's, it's a nice flavor. You get to see groups of different levels, you know, all the way from some groups that have just started, you know, a program or a band at their school, all the way to a school like Purdue or UW-Whitewater, who seem to come every year and have, you know, just great, talented bands, so it, it runs the gamut. And then, actually, one of the big format changes we've had in the last couple of years, we did a virtual event, virtual festival, during the lockdown, and the viewers loved the on-camera, on-mic comments from the judges. So we kept that format alive. Last year, we're bringing it back again this year, where the groups will perform and there'll be live comments from the, the judges uh, that not only the bands will get to hear, but the viewers. So it's really great for the audience members to hear that because then that can, it extends the educational component to everybody in the room. You know, uh, a casual listener can learn something that the musician on stage is learning as well. And that's a, a great value to everybody, not just the performers. And just out of curiosity, so did the festival continue in, in 21 and 22 during the, that period where the, some of the COVID numbers were still going strong? It did. So our last in-person one was in 2020, uh, right before, weeks before everything started locking down. And then in the year 21, we did our virtual event where we had some schools do a recording and submit it. And then we did live adjudicating via Zoom with some judges and then last year, we returned back to the in-person format. Ever since I've been involved with it, it's always evolved. It usually doesn't go more than a handful of years without there some, being some kind of tweak for the better. And then I also just wanted to take a moment here just to go back to kind of the, the history. Uh, I was looking at some of the, the names of artists who have performed at the festival, some, some pretty big names, Dizzy Gillespie, Cannonball Adderley, Clark Terry, yep. Diana Krall. So there's this tradition of... What's your approach when you're programming the uh, the professional musicians? It, we've largely leaned into being definitely being more of a big band uh, oriented festival. Although this year it's different, we have John Pizzarelli coming in, uh, so doing a trio. So it's not exclusively big band. But um, when Doug Beach was running it, and he's still on board, he's actually helping me out tremendously. I, he's acting kind of as the artistic director. But when we talked about, you know, his vision and the thing I'm trying to continue as well is who are you not seeing when they come to Chicago? Big bands don't really tour like they used to in in back in the day and it's hard to see some of these groups. So we try to bring in groups that you may not have the chance to see. Who aren't you going to get to see very often? That's what we we want to try and present when we're formatting the festival. That was Chris Parsons. He's the director of the Elmhurst University Jazz Festival. The 56th edition of the fest kicks off on Thursday afternoon, February 23rd, and continues through Sunday the 26th. You can find more info at elmhurst.edu. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the program's website over at theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m., right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, 
I hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening.